Welcome to the official podcast of Vertical Life Church. We are a non-denominational church located in Clio, Michigan. We exist to engage people where they are and lead them to becoming fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. We hope you are drawn into a deeper relationship with God through this podcast and pray that through the sermons you listen to here, your faith would grow. We are always excited to hear from those who are impacted by this ministry. And we encourage you to email us at contact at vlchurch.tv to share how God is using this ministry in your life. If you would like to support this ministry, you can do so online at www.vlchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you for listening. Church. Uh, my name is Joey, and I'm the lead pastor here. For those of you that are new, I'm glad to see that even with our some of our ladies being gone to the, the ladies' retreat, we still um, have some new faces here, so we just want to say welcome. It's always exciting to be a part of what God is doing here uh, each and every weekend. And uh, so we've now been in a series for a few weeks. Uh, we're calling Eat the Meat, if you didn't notice that or catch that. It's all about going deeper in your relationship with God, not just being satisfied with what we call spiritual milk, just the, the basics of Christianity to where it doesn't really have a real effect in your life, but learning to go deeper into the Word of God, to seek God deeper in prayer, to experience God in a way that draws you in and builds an awareness of who He is, who you are to Him, and, and how your faith can truly transform your life. And so we've been going through this now for a couple weeks, and, and last week we began talking about uh, really the nuts and bolts of who God is. So the, a couple weeks ago we talked about the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom, that we need to have this reverence, this awe, this understanding that He is a big, mighty, fearsome God, that He one day is going to judge sin and death, that He's going to pour out His wrath on all the sons of disobedience. He's going to lay waste to evil, Satan, sin once and for all. And that is something that should make us pause and reflect. He is a great, a mighty God. But then last week we talked about that that same great, a mighty God is also, if we have a relationship with him, he is our father. He is our heavenly father. And we've been talking kind of about the Trinity, that the Trinity really is a term used to describe who God is. And we discussed that there is one God, but he himself exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each person of this Trinity is God, equal to God, and indivisible from God. You cannot have one without the other. And because there are three distinct persons of the Trinity, there are also three distinct relationships that we have with God. And, and we can actually commune with God and, and have a relationship three unique ways with God Almighty. And like I said, last week we looked at God is our Father. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray like this. Say, Father, our Father, who art in heaven. We have relationship with God. It is a parent-child relationship with him as our Father. He protects us. He disciplines us. He provides for us. He takes care of all of our needs. And as every child lives to honor their parents, so we to live for the honor of our God, our Father, who is in heaven. And so we recognize that we have a perfect daddy who never fails. He never abandons us. He loves us unconditionally. And he is so big and he is so mighty that we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to fear what may come our way, what we may encounter. The only thing we need to fear is our daddy. But not fear his judgment and his wrath, no, because he loves us. He is for us. We don't fear judgment and wrath. We just fear him out of awe and reverence of who he is and the things to come. This week, we're going to take a look at the second person of the Trinity, and that is the Son, the Son of God. And we know who he is. We know his name. What's his name, church? Jesus. Jesus Christ is our Trinity Son. When we think about Jesus, we often think of him as our Savior. 
You know, that, that's probably one of the most common things we think about, which he is, right? He died and gave his life on the cross that we may live and have everlasting life, that through him, through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with God. We're redeemed. We're forgiven of our sins. All things are made new. But our relationship with Jesus is far deeper than simply him being our Savior. It's deeper than that. It's closer and more intimate than that. In John chapter 3, there's a guy in the Bible named John the Baptist. He's the cousin of Christ, his earthly cousin. And John started his ministry long before Jesus ever popped on the scene. And John was preaching this message of repentance. Repent and turn to God that your sins may be forgiven. Repent and be baptized. And he began baptizing people in the Jordan River. And he became well known as a great prophet. So well known and so great that people began to question, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And this, in John chapter 3, we have this scene where these people are asking him this question, reveal, how are you so great? How are you so mighty? Reveal who it is that you are. And John replies to them in John chapter 3, verses 28 and 30. Here's what John says. He says, you yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Here, John is this great prophet, has this great following. It's so intense and so uh, life-changing in the area that even the king of the area became, was fearful of John. So much so that he, he was angry at John and, was, and wanted to find a way to, to bring John to his death because of the impact this man had. And, and here John says, you know, I'm not the one that people have been looking for. I'm not the one that is coming that's going to set up his kingdom. No, there's one that is coming after me, one who I'm preparing the way for. As a matter of fact, John says, I am the friend of the groom. I am not the groom. I'm the friend of the groom. I am not the groom. The groom is Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this, the reason why this is important is because if Jesus Christ is the groom, then that means someone or something is the bride. If Jesus is the groom, someone or something must also be his pride. And Paul the Apostle, as he's giving commands to husbands and wives and how to, how to work and operate within a marriage relationship in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul reveals this deep mystery that was long held secret before, uh, since the foundation of the earth and the foundation of the world. And here's what Paul says. He said, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For husband is head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body, as the scriptures say. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Here, the, Paul the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 5, he reveals that one, the husband in the marriage relationship, symbolizes Jesus Christ. And two, the bride symbolizes the church. The husband in the marriage relationship is supposed to be the, the symbol of Jesus. He's supposed to live out the example of Christ in marriage. As Jesus showed love for the church by sacrificing for her, so too husbands should live sacrificially for their wives. And just as the church submits to uh, Jesus as her husband, so too the wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Marriage between a man and a woman, one man and one woman, is God's living symbol of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And just like a husband and wife become one flesh in their marriage union, so too does Jesus become one with his bride in their union. 
This is why not only sins of all kinds, but namely sexual sin, is such a big deal to avoid in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 15 through 18, Paul tells the church of Corinth, he says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. In the marriage relationship, there's a spiritual union that takes place. The man and the woman become one flesh. The woman's body no longer belongs to her. It belongs to her husband. And the same is true. The husband's body is no longer his. It belongs to his wife. You are one. You, you belong to one another. So there's, there's no case where you can say, well, yeah, yeah, this is my sin. This is my struggle. It just, it just affects me. It's not hurting anyone. If you are married and you're sinning against your, your spouse through unfaithfulness, you are literally sinning against her body because your body is not your body. It is her body. And the same is true the other way around. Just as a cheating spouse sins against their spouse's body, when you sin against your own body, you sin also against the Lord's body, if you're in Christ. For you are one with him, just as a husband is one with his wife in marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 10, Paul reveals you know, to, to the church that those who live in rebellion against God, including all manners of perversities and sexual sin, that, that say, you know what, I'm just going to live my own way, do my own thing, that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not see heaven. Why? It's because why on earth would anyone enter a marriage covenant with someone who refuses to honor the vows? Think about that for a second. Someone proposes to you and says, you know what, I want to marry you, but don't ever count on me being faithful. I really don't care about that. I'll be your spouse, but I'm going to still do my own thing. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to have as much fun as I want. I don't care how that affects you or what, makes you th what you think about that. No one in their right mind would walk down that aisle. The same is true in this heavenly marriage. Those that refuse to repent of their sin, that say, God, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't care what you think. This is just how I am. They will not see the kingdom of heaven because this is a marriage. This is why Paul reveals that it is so important to guard yourself. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, quotes from Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. In 531, he says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Paul, referring back to Genesis, the book of Genesis, is revealing to the church here at Ephesus that God was telling the story of redemption all the way back at creation. In the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we see the story of Adam and Eve's creation. He reveals that there's going to be this, this redemptive story, this redemptive plan unleashed into the world. This is why no other form of marriage is acceptable before God. There is a purpose and a plan revealed since the dawn of time that God would use a marriage to save the world. Not just any marriage, but a marriage between one man and one woman, namely the Son of God and his bride, the church. And the beauty of this picture is that everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior gets to be part of the church and therefore included in the bride of Christ. And it's important to understand this because just like we have this, this parent-child relationship with our Heavenly Father, we at this very present time, if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a spousal relationship or a husband-wife relationship with Jesus Christ. This is deeper. This is more intimate than Him just being our Savior if you're in a burning house and a fireman breaks through the door and rescues you, he is your savior. But that's not the same as an intimate relationship with your husband and or wife. It's deeper. It's intimate. Jesus is more than the one who's just rescued us from peril, the perils of the fires of hell, the perils of sin and death. 
Jesus is the one who's betrothed us in an intimate, everlasting relationship with God Almighty. And not only must we see the spousal symbology in our relationship with Christ, but this also implies duties and responsibilities for being part of the bride. We also need to understand that there's marriage customs at work, the marriage customs of the ancient world, to really capture the full picture of of what is happening right now in our very time as we wait on the Lord to return. According to a Jewish website called Haaretz.com, they're talking about ancient Jewish marriage customs. Here's what the website records in this article on, on Jewish customs. It says, once the ketubah, which is the marriage contract, is signed, the marriage rituals can begin. The marriage ceremony is made up of two parts, the kedushin, which is the engagement, and the nayusin, which is the actual marriage. According to the Talmud, which is a kind of a theological explanation of the Hebrew scriptures that's been around for, for centuries, the kedushin literally means sanctification, or the engagement means to be sanctified. It's said to have taken place when any one of three things have happened in this arrangement. First, the woman must accept from the man gifts or a gift. She, or there must be a marriage contract, and they must have or have engaged in uh, intimate relations. Now, historically, after the, cu- after the couple has engaged in one of these three things, whether they receive gifts, she accepts the contract, or, or they get together, a bill of divorcement would ha- need to be issued in order for them to separate. And that, that's different than the way we look at marriage today. How many people do you know get engaged and break up over and over and over again? In this culture, once you're engaged, you have to be officially divorced before you can break apart. I think of the story of Mary and Joseph at the time of the birth of Christ. Joseph was espoused to Mary to be married, and when he found out she was pregnant, he kind of had a problem with that. You know, and he started thinking, you know, what, what are my options? And he really had three options. One, I could put her away privately, and so no one would know what was going on. And this is what he was in the scripture. You can see he was thinking about doing. He could either put her into open shame and accuse her of adultery, which would in turn resulted in her death. She would have been stoned to death. And, or he could, what he ended up doing is he received her as his bride and took the shame upon himself. And we know that is as of the Lord. But this is how marriage was in the ancient times. And when the engagement happened, it was as if you were married, even though the marriage had not taken place yet. So historically, uh, during this Kedushin, the couple, uh, as they're going to be engaged, they're going through the engagement ceremony. It wasn't just getting down on one knee and, and showing the ring and saying, will you marry me? In, in the engagement ceremony, the couple would re- recite two blessings, and one would be over a cup of wine. The man would give the woman either a ring or some gifts in, in the presence of witnesses, and he would repeat a formula. Number one, he would declare over his wife, you are sanctified now to me by this gift. And then number two, the marriage contract would be read aloud. Now, in modern times, it's really the, the first of these three conditions, the acceptance of gifts, the evidence that the woman has agreed to the union that is considered what is necessary for marriage. So even now in our day, they, they still hold to these customs just a little differently. But in ancient times, the two parts, the engagement and the marriage, they took place, but at separate times. The engagement would happen, and then at least within a, a year, the marriage would take place after then, sometimes longer. Now, the reason why we need to understand the marriage customs is because when we read the scripture, we have to take our minds out of 2017 and we have to place it in year zero, the time the scriptures were actually written to really get to the meat of what is happening in the Bible. And what's powerful about this understanding and taking our minds back to the time of Christ is that with the marriage customs of that day, number one, there had to be a marriage contract. A marriage contract had to be offered, and typically this was with the father. The, 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 the groom would make arrangements with the father. They would pay a dowry or some type of payment in order to have this contract approved and make this agreement. In John chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says this. He says, My father has given them to me, and he's more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my father's hand. If you notice what Jesus said, he said, my father has given them, who are them? Those in his bride. My father has given them to me. 
There is a contract that took place between the son and the father for the bride. A contract that cannot be undone or broken. If you remember, once the engagement takes place, a bill of divorcement would need to be decreed for them to separate. And what did Jesus say? He said that my father's will is that what God has put together, no one would separate. Divorce is not in the equation. God's will is that it is eternal. It is binding. It is irrevocable. The second thing is the groom has to make a payment to the father and offer gifts to the bride, and she must accept those gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 reveals that Jesus purchased us with a high price, and we understand what that price was. It was his very own life. He purchased us with his blood. And the gifts that he's given to the bride for her to accept are freedom from sin and death, the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, eternal life, and a new relationship as a son or daughter of the Most High God. All of these become available when we accept his offer for marriage. John 1.12 says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God to accept the marriage, to, to enter into this, this relationship, you must accept the marriage. And we accept this gift and his gifts when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And not only must the gifts be given, but it also must be attested to by witnesses. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 and 9, John records this. We have these three witnesses, the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, the water and the blood. These are the elements that flowed from the Lord's side when he died. So since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God, and God has testified about his son. The witnesses of the marriage contract is the divine family himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No greater witnesses to guarantee that we'll receive everything we've promised than God himself. Number three, the blessing is then spoken over the bride over a cup of wine. And if you recall, I believe there was a dinner that happened just before the time that Christ gave his life. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it said, after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And if you remember, Jesus blessed the cup and he passed it to those who are following him signifying that as that blessing was passed to us, the blessing of the marriage falls on all who enter into the covenant. Hallelujah. Number four, there's the declaration of sanctification. Once the bride agrees to the marriage and receives the gifts and the blessing is spoken over her, the, the groom speaks over this bride, you are sanctified to me by this gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, the word of God says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. When you said yes to the Lord, when you received him as your Lord and Savior, Jesus spoke over you, you are sanctified to me. You are sanctified, and at that point, you become part of the bride. And the bride at that point, the point, the point the engagement is locked in, she declares or considers herself married, even though the marriage has not been consummated or finalized yet. There's been no official marriage. That happens much later. And this is why now, even as the church, we consider ourselves the bride of Christ, because we have this relationship. It's locked in. It's been sealed. The, the contract has been ratified. And with this contract, we have the benefit of Christ's authority here on the earth to operate in his authority and in his name as we stand against Satan and his kingdom. Matthew 16, 19, Jesus said, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Right now, if you've trusted in Christ, you've been given the keys. Jesus has, has entered this contract with you. He's drawn you in as his spouse, and he's given you the authority to work and operate in his name, as if you are married right now. Hallelujah. After the marriage contract, after the engagement, the groom then departs for a time to prepare a place for his bride. In John 14, 2 and 3, Jesus said, There's more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? 
When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And after the death of Jesus Christ and after his glorious resurrection, he ascended to heaven to begin preparations to receive his bride for all eternity. So with the image of the marriage customs, right now where we are in 2017 is in the engagement phase with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The wedding has not happened yet. That happens in Revelation 19 as John looks into the future and is given this picture of what happens at the end. This wedding happens when Jesus returns to set up his earthly kingdom. So the wedding hasn't happened yet. But we are still included in the bride because of the engagement. Until the day of redemption, the day of salvation, the day we're changed from corruptible to incorruptible and sit at that marriage table where we finally realize our full adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High God, the full promise that we have, the bride of Christ has one responsibility. One thing we need to focus on with this relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's found in Revelation chapter 19, verses 5 through 7. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 5, it says, And a voice came out from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude, and a voice of many waters, as the voice of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready." Repeat that with me. His wife hath made herself ready. Our spousal relationship with Jesus is based on past promises and future promises. Past events and future promises. We look back to what he did to prove his love for us. We look forward to being united with him forever. And in the meantime, as we wait on his return, the bride does one thing leading up to the big day, and that's she makes herself ready. She prepares all the details. Think, think about your marriage, those of you that have been married, or those of you that, that maybe are dreaming about the day you do become married, the day you begin picking out your dress and all your colors and, and how you're going to horrify your bridesmaids, what you're going to make them wear on that day. You know, all the different things that, that go into that, right? When the bride is looking for that wedding, getting ready, she prepares all the details. She prepares the gown, the flowers. She even prepares her body to give it as a gift to her husband. And that is the space that we're in right now as the church. We're preparing ourselves, or should be preparing ourselves for the wedding day. Hallelujah. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul the Apostle writes to the church of Philippi. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much the more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's encouraging this church. He's saying, don't take this marriage contract lightly. Work it out. Honor it. Pursue your responsibility with reverence toward your husband, knowing who it is that has betrothed you. Knowing who it is that's coming one day to receive you back unto yourself. This is so important for us to have this imagery and understand what's happening even now as we wait on the Lord because many of us get lost in this idea of eternal security. And I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about the fact that you feel like God's coming back. You've got your ticket to heaven, your ticket to the rapture, and there's really nothing else you have to worry about. So I'm just going to ride this thing out until he comes and not really worry. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. And that type of thinking that I have nothing left to do until he comes feeds an attitude of apathy and self-righteousness. Why, oh why do I need to worry about anything else? when God's just going to take me out of here? Why do I got to worry about confessing my sins and, and growing in faith and pursuing a deeper relationship with God? I'm already going to heaven. Let someone else take care of that ministry. Let somebody else go to that foreign nation. Let somebody else pursue God and, and understand what the Greek and the Hebrew languages mean so we don't all interpret Scripture improperly and have a poor understanding of the Word of God. 
Let somebody else do it. I'm just going to sit in my pew and listen to the sermon and and feel charged up, and I'm going to go home and act just the same as I always have. I'm not going to grow in my personal relationship with God. This idea of of all that needs to be done is done is filling the church with apathy. That's why you see in Revelation, the 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 seven letters to the seven churches, the last church of Laodicea, God rebukes them or the Lord rebukes them because they were enriched with goods. They needed nothing, even God. They had no desperation, no dependence, no drive, no desire to honor him with all that they were. They were self-righteous, they were self-content, and they were just coasting out until the end. Apathy is so severe in many of our lives in churches. And part of receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is to submit to him as your husband, to follow his lead, and obey his commands. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Denying oneself is part of the role of the bride. When the bride agrees to marry the groom, when she takes this man to be her lawfully wedded husband, she loses her last name and takes on his name, signifying she is not her own anymore. She receives a new identity and lives on in this new identity because she has been forever connected with her husband. Her plans become his plans. Her goals become his goals. She loses the right to live an independent life from her husband. She gives up these things because what she gains by giving up these things far outweighs what she could ever have all by herself. And the same is true for Christians. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as your spouse, you lose your name. And you take on his name. Matter of fact, we're told in Revelation, he even gives you a name written on a stone that only you're going to know. You even get a little pet nickname from God. You get his name. You lose your plans and your goals and your thoughts and ideas for the future because you've adopted his now as your husband. And why do we do that? It's because what we gain for losing ourselves, from denying ourselves by wedding Christ far exceeds anything we could have on our own in this life or in the life to come. And our pledge to marry the Lord is deeper. Our pledge to love him is deeper. It goes deeper than just a prayer, God, forgive me of my sins. It's deeper. It's more intimate. It's more to the core of your, all of your being. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, then obey my commandments. If you love me as your husband, then submit to what I'm asking you to do. Submit to my will for your life. John 14, 12, he says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. The bride that loves her husband will, in the absence of her husband, carry on the work of her husband because she adores him, is inspired by him, and follows his lead. This is what the church is to be doing as followers of Jesus Christ because the bride can really only focus on one thing, living to honor her husband. Peter, in in his letters, comments on how Sarah, Abraham's wife, honored her husband by even calling him master. Was he a great guy? Probably not. He made a lot of mistakes. But she honored and reverenced her husband to the point that she called him Lord and master. And the reality is, for us as the church, Jesus is our Lord and master. That's who he is. He is the Lord, and he's worthy of that title. And so as the bride, we need to be preparing for the wedding day, submitting to the Lord and and, and submitting to the things he's asked us to do. The bride, as she's preparing, she has this urgency to be ready, to be ready for that day, to let no detail go to waste, to let no no stone be unturned, let nothing be left behind. And and in the time of ancient Israel, the bride had to be uh, in a constant state of urgency because she was waiting for the day the husband would return to come and get her. 
She had to be ready at all times for the day that the announcement was made, here he comes to get you. Because unlike today where we have a calendar and a date, they had no idea when that day was going to come. The bride had to be ready at all times for when the groom would arrive. And the reality was that if the groom came and the bride was not ready, the bride delayed, he could take that as a sign of rejection or infidelity and refuse the marriage. Jesus tells a parable much like this. In Matthew chapter 25, 1 through 13, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming, come out and meet him. And all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, then the other five bridesmaids returned. They stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back and he said, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. The strong difference between the foolish and the wise bridesmaids were that the wise bridesmaids had their total focus, lived their lives around the coming of the groom. That was their focus. That is what everything went into. They spared no expense. They wasted no time making sure that they were ready, that they had everything they needed. And this revealed the nature of their hearts, that they truly loved the groom, that he was the object of their affection. They were anticipating with excitement their new life together, what was going to be on the other side of marriage. Nothing else mattered. Nothing else mattered to them but having that oil. The foolish bridesmaids didn't care until it was too late. They were apathetic. They took the groom for granted, and they assumed they'd just be accepted no matter what. Oh, it doesn't matter. I I can fluff around, and I'll get what I need when, when I need it. But you know what? They were dead wrong. When the door was shut, the opportunity to go into the wedding chamber was gone. And they were rejected as if they had never been known. And the sobering part of this illustration that the Lord is giving us is that all of the women were bridesmaids. They were all invited to the wedding. But only those who loved the Lord were recognized because they were the ones who made themselves ready. And our responsibility in this relationship, this this, this spousal, this husband-wife relationship with Jesus Christ right now in the waiting is to make ourselves ready, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, putting our sinful nature to death, doing the work of the ministry, sharing the gospel, being the hands and feet of Jesus in his absence, and being led and living in the Holy Spirit. See, oil in biblical times represented the anointing of the Spirit of God. That's why in Psalm 23, it says, you anoint my head with oil. That is, that is a spiritual anointing. And here we see oil as being what they needed to find their way to the groom. And the foolish bridesmaids didn't have enough of what they needed to meet him because they squandered the time they had to prepare. They squandered it on the worries of this life. They squandered it on vanity. They squandered it on pleasure rather than being prepared for the time of his coming. That's why it's important that we understand the manners and customs of the day, because during this engagement phase, we are to be preparing for the coming of the Lord, anticipating our redemption day. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, as we're in this waiting, there's something that's happening right now. As we're preparing ourselves, we're making ourselves ready here on the earth. There's something that's going on in heaven that we have no idea is happening, but is revealed in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, 
It says, then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. The day of redemption is being prepared. It's getting ready to come down. And he says, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. This event is still yet future. It happens in the last days. And the time Christ returns to the earth. The question I have for you, church, is who is the accuser? Who do you think is the accuser? Yeah, it's Satan. Satan is the accuser. Now look at what uh, John writes in Revelation. He says, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth. He's the one that accuses them before our God day and night. Where does he accuse the brothers and sisters? Before God, right? So where is Satan right now if he's accusing us? He's in heaven, right? Satan's not just wandering around, meandering in this, in this world, just trying to figure out, find something to do or, or find somebody to mess with. He's got people for that. Satan is the accuser. He's before the very throne of God, and he's accusing us. He's bringing up all of our sins and all the ways we don't measure up, all the ways we've sinned against God and have been, been uh, cheating, adulterous uh, idol worshipers before God. He's constantly bringing accusations against us, and, and he's, he's attacking us, and he's trying to bring down the wrath of God on us. But what do you think your husband is doing? What do you think Jesus is doing? In John chapter 2, verse 1, says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who's truly righteous. He himself, the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. This term advocate is a legal term. That means our husband is also before the Father, at the right hand of the Father, as our lawyer, as our advocate, as the one who's standing up for us before the very throne of God. This is the picture of Jesus, our groom, standing in the courtroom of heaven, pleading on the behalf of his bride. So as Satan brings that accusation, look at sister so-and-so, look at all the things she's done to mess up her life. Our husband is saying, shut your mouth, devil, I got that one. She's covered in the blood of Christ. He is pleading. He is pleading before the Father. God, have mercy on that man. His brokenness is covered by my blood. I died for him. I purchased him. He is part of our agreement, our contraction, contractual agreement. You can't go back on your word. That is my bride that he's speaking about. This back and forth battle is happening right here, right now in heaven. But what is so powerful about this that I see in scripture is that even though this is going back and forth, there is going to come a day where Jesus says the plans have been prepared. The home is ready. Satan, you're going to shut your mouth. Matter of fact, let's do it right now. He grabs him by the throat. He casts him down to heaven. He says enough is enough. He's battling for us as our groom before the throne of God. And one day he's going to put an end to all the problems, all the struggle, and all the strife. He's fighting for us even now. I mean, I, I can just imagine, like those of you that, are, that, that have had that marriage relationship, you know that even if your spouse is wrong, but someone says something about it, what rises up in you? That, that fierce anger and wrath and, and malice. And I can see Jesus casting Satan down and, and there being a few bumps and bruises on him before he even hits the ground. That enough will be enough. And Jesus says, it is time. I'm going to pull them out of this garbage once and for all. I'm going to come get my bride. See, Jesus loves us with a ferocious love, and he's not just left us alone to struggle and, 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 and worry ourselves through these days. He is fighting for us on our behalf. Because as our husband, he is not only our leader, but he's also our closest friend. And one day he's going to return and take us home. Jesus is our source of hope because we know one day the struggles will be over. The doctor's appointments will be over. The marital conflict will be over. The struggle and strife, the sin and all the oppression and all the evil we see, one day it's going to be over. He is our source of hope. 
This is why we sing songs of encouragement and songs of faith because we continue to look forward to the wedding day. We keep refocusing ourselves not to get caught up in the worries of this world, but to make sure we got the oil that we need to be ready for when the skies part, the trumpet sounds, and the announcement, here he comes. Jesus is our fiancé and is coming soon to finalize the marriage with his bride. This is the relationship we, we have with Jesus. He's not just Savior. His husband, his spouse. And the question I have for you today, church, is do you understand that you are engaged to the Prince of Peace? And then with that comes honor, but as well as duties and responsibilities. What are you doing to honor the heavenly marriage? What are you doing today to prepare for his coming? Jesus, in the parable of the ten bridesmaids, cast away the foolish because he said he never knew them. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. And John said in 1 John 2, 3, he says, we can be sure that we know him if we do what? Obey his commandments. If we love him. If the foolish brides were cast away because they didn't know the Lord, then we better make sure we know him and we obey his commandments. Are you loving Jesus by obeying his commandments today? Are you pursuing him? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that the day is coming when the bride or the groom comes for his bride? Are you carrying on the ministry Jesus left behind as representatives of his divine family? I mean, how can you say you know him if you don't even know what ministry he had or what it looks like? How can you say you know him if you don't know what he does? How can you say you love him if you don't love what he loves? How can you say you know him and love him if you don't serve how he serves? Are you living as a faithful witness? Are you telling those around them that they too are invited to the wedding? Are you serving the least of these in your husband's name? Are you loving the other members of the wedding party with an unconditional sacrificial love? Are you focused on the wedding, making sure you have everything you need? Or are you getting lost in the cares of this world? like everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes now as we bring the service to a close. Just no one looking around in this moment. And ask yourself this question. Be honest with yourself. If the Lord were to come back today, would you have enough oil to go out and meet him? If Jesus were to come back today, would you have enough oil to go out and meet him? Would you have enough Holy Spirit? Would you have enough evidence in your life to get you before the Father's throne? If not, then why? Your husband has loved you to the point of death. Why would you not be ready? Maybe you'd not be ready because you've not accepted his proposal. You're flattered that he asked you to marry him, but you've not yet received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've not said, yes, God, I accept your marriage proposal. I place my faith and trust in you. I'm going to turn from my sins, and I'm going to choose to follow you all of my days, to trust you as my Lord. Maybe you've been flattered, but you've yet to receive and accept the proposal. Maybe you accepted the proposal, but you just got tired of waiting for the groom to show up. And so you've allowed apathy to fill your life. Maybe you've become so self-righteous that you don't feel like there's anything left to do, but yet when you look at other people who are following the Lord, you're wondering, 
Why is God doing stuff through them that he's not doing through me? Why, why do they seem to be growing and being blessed and I'm not growing and being blessed? There's something like God's doing in, with them that I want him to do with me, but he's not doing it with me. Why is that? Because maybe you just became self-righteous and stopped pursuing the Lord. You feel like you've arrived, but yet you see how far you have yet to go. I've had to face that many times in my life. If Jesus would return today, would you be ready? He is our husband. And if you want to experience the love of your heavenly spouse, it begins with saying, I do. And not just I do so I can avoid hell, but I do because I want you. I love you. I betrothed myself to you. I commit myself to you. I cast away all others. There shall be no other God before me. There shall be no other one that comes between us. I'm not going to allow the cares and worries of this life to consume my mind and make me worried more about finances than being obedient to God, to be more worried about what people think of me than what God's asking me to do. There's going to be no other voice, no other name under heaven that I pursue or live for the glory of. It is you, Jesus. I'm going to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you. Father, as we go into a time of prayer and response, as we have this image of Jesus and his bride, and the understanding that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we need to be preparing for the wedding day. We need to be working against all the things the world is trying to get us to be focused on and divide our attention with God and be focused on the oil, focused on more Holy Spirit, focused on more of you in our life, God, so that we can be found worthy on that day to go into the marriage. Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus that we become honest with ourselves and we would finally release the things we're holding on to that's keeping us from growing in our relationship. God, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, they've never trusted in you as the Lord and Savior, maybe today they're in their heart right now, they can hear your voice saying, you need to trust in Jesus. You need to make him your Lord and Savior. God, I pray as we stand and sing, they would make their way down the aisle to the front and allow me to pray with them and introduce them to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray as a church, we would constantly pursue you. We would not ever stop pursuing your presence, Lord. That we'd be so filled with your Holy Spirit, God, that the gifts of the Spirit would be manifest, God, that we'd see people lay their hands on others and the healing would come, God, that we would see even the dead raised because of the power of God in our midst. That we would not be satisfied with enough, that we would continue to pursue until we are fully filled from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet with the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, Almighty God. Help us make ourselves ready. Fill us with faith. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. If you have prayer needs, we invite you to come forward. If you'd like to share a word of encouragement or a, a praise, the microphone's available and down here, and I'll be here to pray with you. But for the next few moments, let's just go into a time of praise and prayer as we respond to the Lord.